aren't you just a sight for sore eyes? Of all the movie and TV joints in all the towns and all the world, you walked into mine. How lovely. Come, sit. Let me pour you a drink before we begin the showing. You know, I think that this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Cheers. Here's looking at you, Phil. Well, hello there. How are we? Welcome back to Here's Looking at You Film, a podcast for the vintage cinephile with modern sensibilities. I'm your host, Nikki, and today is a momentous occasion. I think I think I used that phrase correctly. Today, we have reached 25 episodes. Yes, it's not quite 100 or 500, but I am happy with this little pocket of happiness that I've carved out for myself here on these interwebs and I am so thankful for all of you that stop in to hear me to do whatever I do each week. Um, I'm still figuring myself out and I'm still figuring out my audience but um, I hope that anyone that stumbles across me enjoys the hour or so that we spend together because I know I do and I appreciate every moment that we have so thank you. So in honor of our 25th episode, today we will be going back in time to a lost place. A land of gentlemen and debutantes, honor, courage, and cotton fields. And slaves. We're headed to the Deep South for one of the most famous American films ever made, Gone with the Wind. Gone with the Wind is a 1939 American epic historical romance film produced by David Selznick and directed by Victor Fleming, um, mostly. We'll get into that in a second. It was adapted from the 1936 novel by Margaret Mitchell, which was set against the backdrop of the American Civil War and the following Reconstruction era. And it sort of splits um, the movie into those two parts, the war and Reconstruction. It was originally directed by George Cukor, director of Gaslight, if you remember, but he got fired. And they brought in Vic Fleming, who actually was replaced by director Sam Wood for a little bit due to exhaustion for about three weeks. And honestly, Buddy was within his rights because Fleming also was directing another film at the same year, at the same time that he was directing this film as well. But you may not know it. It's called The Wizard of Oz. My guy was crushing it, okay? The Wizard of Oz and Gone with the Wind directed at the same time. Okay, get it. The casting was no easier. Selznick wanted Clark Gable so bad for this film, but he was under contract at MGM and they were not loaning him out. Now I told y'all about studio contracts before. They do not play about their actors. If you wanna see Clark, you gonna see him in an MGM movie. So Selznick waited two years to be able to negotiate a deal with MGM, mostly because of the chief of MGM was his father-in-law, whose daughter he was definitely cheating on. But that's a whole different story for a whole different day. 
Now, casting the famous Scarlett O'Hara's role was an even larger feat as they ended up bringing in over 1,400 unknown women to audition for the role and spent over $100,000 on the process. Not one of them was picked, but it did drum up a lot of talk and like controversy for the film, which is never bad. However, out of the 31 women that were actually considered, only two finalists, Paulette Goddard and Vivian Lee, were texted in Technicolor, both on December 20th. Goddard almost got the role of Scarlett O'Hara, but Selznick, um, there was some, I'm oh, sorry, there was some controversy because Goddard was married to Charlie Chaplin, and that was a little bit, um, there was a lot of controversy going on around that, and so Selznick decided it may be better to go with Vivian Lee. Now, he had also been quietly considering Vivian Lee this whole time. She was a, a young English actress who was still very unknown in America at the time, um, and she he had seen her in February of 1938 in Fire Over England and A Yank at Oxford which was actually remade in 1984 into a movie starring Rob Lowe called Oxford Blues, if that's something that you did not know. Fun fact, yay! So, um, just before the shooting of the film, uh, after all of this controversy and finally um, casting the Scarlett O'Hara role, Selznick informed newspaper columnist Ed Sullivan that Scarlett O'Hara's parents were French and Irish. And identically, Mrs. Lee's parents are French and Irish as well. So apparently, Vivian Lee was sort of made to play this role. The original screenplay that was written for this film would have needed over six hours of filming time. So it underwent a series of rewrites that included a lot of condensing. Also, one criticism that the film often receives is that it tried to stay so close to the source material that they kind of forgot that cinema and literature are perceived differently. Some of the themes and language in the film can get a little bit repetitive, making the almost four-hour runtime seem unnecessary. And this was one of the reasons that George Cukor and Selznick started having disagreements from the beginning. But the people say that ultimately, George Cukor was fired because, y'all, Come closer, let me tell y'all. It's a secret. So they said that Clark Gable pulled some strings to have him let go. Now, Clark, they say, for a little bit was a gay gigolo, like gay for pay out in the, in the gay circuit on the low low. And he knew that George Cukor knew. I don't know if he was a client or if he just knew cause of hearsay, cause he was in the scene, but he knew that Cukor knew. So instead of having the discomfort of working with somebody that knew about his like past, he had him fired. Now, that's just what the people say, okay? But there have been quite a few stories about Clark Gable being gay and about him working his way through the circuit. So I don't know if it's true, but listen, that's just what the people say. I'm just telling you what the people say, okay? And apparently both Vivian Lee and Olivia, Olivia de Havilland begged Selznick to bring Cukor back because they he had been coaching them during the filming. Um, but he wouldn't. He went ahead and hired Vic Fleming, which, I mean, the film is great. Ended up being a wonderful choice. But um, Cukor also kind of kept coaching um, 
Viv uh, Vivian Lee and Olivia de Havilland on the side. So it worked out for everybody in one way or another, but you know, it kind of sucks that that was the reason he may have been let go. Now the cast list is pretty long and is actually split up by location because there's a couple different places that are, you know, noted in the film. So um, we'll run through the main cast list pretty much, but there's quite a few people, so just bear with me, okay? So we got Thomas Mitchell as Gerald O'Hara, that's the father, Barbara O'Neill as Ellen O'Hara, Miss Ellen, his uh, wife or uh, Scarlett's mother, Vivian Lee as Scarlett O'Hara, Evelyn Keyes as Sue Ellen O'Hara, Anne Rutherford as Kareen O'Hara, George Reeves as Brett Tarleton, Fred Crane as Stuart Tarleton. Um, so they are referred to as Brent and Stuart, but Stuart and Brent interchangeably because they are twins, but not really twins, which is crazy. Um, Hattie McDaniel as Mammy, Oscar Polk as Pork, Butterfly McQueen as Prissy, um, and we'll talk about Prissy probably in the next episode at the end. We'll talk about Prissy a little bit more. We'll talk about all of the black characters at the end of the next episode, but okay. Um, Victor Jory as Jonas Wilkerson and Everett Brown as Big Sam. That is, um, everyone that is at Terra Plantation. Um, that is where we start and where we also end up. Now at Twelve Oaks, we have Howard Hickman as John Wilkes. At Alicia Rett as India Wilkes, Leslie Howard as Ashley Wilkes, Olivia de Havilland as Melanie Hamilton, Rand Brooks as Charles Hamilton, Carol Nye as Frank Kennedy, and Clark Gable as Rhett Butler. Now, of course, these people don't all live there, but this is where we initially meet them in the film. Now, in Atlanta, where we end up going, we have Laura Hope Cruz as Aunt Pity Pat Hamilton, Eddie Anderson as Uncle Peter, which is her coachman, um, Harry Davenport as Dr. Mead, Leona Roberts as Mrs. Mead, Jane Darwell as Mrs. Merriweather, and Ona Munson as Belle Watling. Now, we do also have some minor supporting roles as well, like Isabel Jewell as Emmy Slattery, um, the white trash that... <laughs> This is so sad. They refer to her literally as white trash. Multiple, mostly Mammy refers to her as white trash. No one else does. But he does. she does it like four times. Um, we have um, Cami King playing Bonnie Blue, which we'll get to in the second film. Uh, Eric Linden, who plays the amputation guy, um, who sounds... We'll get to that as well, too. Um, and also, uh, just for note... Following um, the death of Olivia de Havilland, who uh, passed away in July of 2020 at the age of 104, you go girl, um, the only surviving cast member of this film right now is Mickey Coon, who played Ashley and Melanie's son, Bo, and he's he was literally a um, child, like a child in the film. So, um, he's the only surviving cast member from the film at this point. Everyone else has passed on because it did come out in 1939 and, you know, that's how time works. So, as you guys know, this is the time now that we have met our players. Now we can officially press play. 
So our film begins with the Selznick International logo, a color video of his lot. And here begins our opening credit sequence. We've talked before about how the trailers were at the end and the long credit sequences were at the top. And the cast list is organized by location, as I told you, Terror, 12 Oaks in Atlanta. Um, and that's done as well on screen. We get lush orchestral music laid on top of video footage of blooming spring flowers, rippling waters, rolling hills of cotton, and slaves. So many slaves. Which, to be fair, is accurate to the time. And we are, of course, talking about a Civil War film. And the Civil War grandly revolves around slaves. But we will talk about how this film was perceived at the time and afterwards. Um, after the second part, but just know the slaves are there. This is Margaret Milch Mitchell's story of the old South gone with the wind. We get uh, a sort of like prologue text on the screen. Now, periodically throughout this film, we do get some text on the screen that comes from the book. This is the only text that I am going to read directly from the book. Um, but um, there is some that periodically pops up on the screen to let us know what's going on in the story. So it reads, there was a land of cavaliers and cotton fields called the Old South. Here in this pretty world, gallantry took its last bow. Here was the last ever to be seen of knights and their ladies fair, of master and of slave. Look for it only in books, for it is no more than a dream remembered, a civilization gone with the wind. If movies ended when they referred to themselves by saying their own title, this film would have been done in five minutes. Okay, so now the movie really begins after our title sequence. Twin boys, about 18, the Tarleton boys, sit on the porch blabbing on about the war that's said to be coming. But the Tarleton twins are blathering to Scarlett O'Hara, who is about 16 and is not interested at all in hearing about a war. In fact, she says if they mention war one more time, she's going inside. And when they do, she gets up and huffs towards the house until they beg her to stay outside. They, like many of the boys in town, fawn over Scarlet, and she absolutely loves it, okay? So they ask her if she's gonna dance with them at the barbecue tomorrow at the Wilkes' house called 12 Oaks. They start talking about the party, and then they reveal a secret to Scarlett. Ashley Wilkes' cousin, Melanie, and her brother, Charles Hamilton, are in town. I said Hamilton because I'll tell you in a minute. I'll tell you later. Um, but Melanie and her brother, Charles Hamilton, are in town, and Ashley is about to ask Melanie, his cousin, to marry him because the Wilkes' always marry their cousins. That's a direct quote. I didn't just say that because I'm, I, the Wilkes's always marry their cousins. And let me tell y'all something, just to be clear. For the full duration of the film, nobody thinks this is weird, except Rhett may mention it, I think like once or twice. But this is perfectly normal in the gallant Old South that the Wilkes's marry their cousins. Y'all, okay, so, now Scarlett done heard about Ashley and she is pissed. She is absolutely sure that Ashley loves her and she can't stand 
Melanie. So she leaves the twins and goes running off to wait for her dad to come home from the Welkses. All while Mammy is yelling out the window for Scarlett to get her shawl and asking why she didn't invite them boys to stay for supper and telling her to come in before she catches a cold. Mammy is like the naggiest aunt that you can think of, you know? But like with good intentions, but like mad naggy. But like as charming as their interactions may be, please always remember Mammy is a slave. She she is a slave. Now we have one of the first like kind of awkward slave scenes. So they're working out in the field. One of them, the slave says, Quitting time. And Big Sam, this other slave, basically says, I'm the foreman. I get to say when it's quitting time. Quitting time. Like the slaves are having fun convos out in the fields about who gets to say what. And the children who ring the bell, it's like two kids who like get on the little wheel that rings the bell and they swing back and forth. And they almost look like, and I hate to say this out loud because me as a black woman, I know that black people are referred to as monkeys a lot. But these two children, these two little boys look like monkeys. They like film them in shadow so you can't really see their faces or their features that much. You just see them hanging on to this little um, wheel as the bell rings to tell the slaves that it's quitting time. But anyway, the other thing about it is I don't understand like I don't know what quitting time is I know that they're working in the fields and they get to like they get to get off work I didn't know that was a thing now maybe like in like later slave times like they figured out a way to make that work but like they quit they got off work and I don't think that's accurate but maybe I'm incorrect anyway Scarlett heads out to greet her dad while who's comes in riding on a horse even has his horse to hop the fence. He looks like a straight, like a knight. Like he looks like something out of like a medieval fairy tale. Um, Scarlet greets him lovingly. Um, then she asks him about his visit at the Wilkes's. And he basically confirms to her that Melanie is there and Ashley intends to marry her. And when Scarlet gets visibly upset by this, her dad asks if like Ashley has ever shown intention or anything towards her. Like, did Ashley ask you to marry him? And she was like, no. And her dad is not playing the pity card. He's like, okay, well, all these boys, all these boys are in town, and Scarlett wants to marry Ashley's old ass. Mr. O'Hare would not have it. Plus, once he's gone, he intends to leave Tara to her the land. Okay, well, Tara is the name of their plantation, which I've always thought was pretty, but. He feels like it doesn't matter who he who she marries as long as he's a southerner and shares her values. That's all he asks. She says she doesn't care about the land, but he tells her land is the only thing that lasts. Now she's half Irish due to Mr. O'Hara's blood, which I've said, and the Irish cherish their land like their own mother. He tells her that she'll learn. And eventually she does. We'll talk about that later. Uh, that evening, when Scarlett's mother, Ellen, gets home, Mammy is scurrying around, ordering the other house folk to get food and comfort ready for her, all while muttering about how Miss Ellen don't need to be out there being a wet nurse for white trash. Even as tired and as late as it is, she checks in with Scarlett, Ellen, Miss Ellen, as, as she clearly isn't well. You know, Scarlett is suffering because she is in love with Ashley, child. Later, 
Now, during evening prayers with uh, Miss Ellen, Scarlett's mother, her two sisters, and Scarlett, um, she's over there having like a whole conversation with herself and out loud. And she has the bright idea to tell Ashley that she loves him because the problem must be that he just does not know. Duh. Like, just tell him. And then he won't want to marry his cousin anymore. Okay. So, next morning, Scarlett's getting ready for the barbecue. She tells Mammy she is not eating breakfast. And Mammy basically chastises her and says that women are supposed to eat like birds. And if she doesn't eat now, she'll be eating like a hog in front of the people. And when Scarlett says that Ashley likes a girl that can eat, Mammy reminds her that Ashley is not asking to marry her. So, begrudgingly, she sits down and stuffs some bread down before she leaves. At the Wilkes's. John Wilkes is greeting people into his home. When John tells his daughter, India, that the O'Haras are approaching, she mentions how Scarlett basically throws herself at Ashley. But John quickly says, that's Ashley's problem, not hers. Greet them. You're a host. So, clearly, Scarlett hasn't been hiding anything from anyone. They know. So, Scarlett heads in and immediately makes a beeline to find Ashley. She sees him. She mentions that she has something to tell him, but he has something to tell her too. He tells her that Melanie wants to see her as she loves Scarlett. Scarlett puts on some fake ass charm for her, but, but she's basically doing that thing where she acts like she knows Ashley so well, even making a point to say that Melanie is too serious for Ashley. But y'all, Melanie is literally the sweetest woman in existence. She tells Scarlett that she wants to be great friends with her. And she loves how Scarlett seems so full of life. And Ashley is in love, love with Melanie. They look at each other like every moment is a romance novel. He says things to her like, you look like you belong here. As if it was all imagined for you. And she says, I feel, I like to feel like I belong to the things you love. They're like poetry. So... Let me just recap real quick. Scarlett likes Ashley, who has expressed no interest in her outside of like brotherly love, pretty much. He is now very clearly and publicly in love with his cousin, so much so that he has confirmed with his father that he wants to marry her. Okay, we got all that? Okay. Now, Melanie's brother Charles Hamilton walks up and... Like I, um, I may, oh, I didn't explain this earlier, but they wanted to make sure that the Southern accents were as close to Southern accents as they possibly could be. And I mentioned that Vivian Lee is an English actress. Um, and so at, there's some points where when she refers to Charles Hamilton, she goes, Charles Hamilton. She, I don't know if it's her trying to like, um, muddle up the, the consonants the way that southern people do but like the last half of his name disappears so it's just Charles him <laughs> so um, Charles walks up Scarlett immediately starts flirting with him in front of Ashley she walks away flirts with another guy she flirts with the dude that her sister is talking to then she sees the twins, flirts with them, telling all of these guys that she wants to quote-unquote eat barbecue with them. Now, mind you, all these guys that she's flirting with are already kind of with other girls, including Charles, sort of being promised to India because, you know, they're cousins. 
We talked about how the Wilkes' always marry their cousins. But Scarlett just loves that attention. And they all fall all over themselves about Scarlett. As soon as she speaks to them, they are so happy to speak back. So she's got them there. But the only man she really wants, obviously, is Ashley. And when she's flirting her way around, she sees a man watching her. She's up all like on this on the top of the stairs and he's down on the bottom looking at her almost leering and she asks someone who he is <laughs> this girl i don't know who this woman is but i love the way she talks so i'm gonna say uh, the way she says it she goes why that's Shrek butler from charleston he has the most terrible reputation his people from charleston won't speak to him and he got expelled from west point and apparently something happened where he took a girl for a drive with no chaperone, but then wouldn't marry him. So apparently, maybe something happened, maybe not, but a girl with no chaperone out with a man in the afternoon is presumed to be ruined. And he did that. What an intro to Red Butler. So, Scarlett is surrounded by, at some point, probably 15 men, some of whom even sit at Scarlett's feet just to be in her presence. And they're all clamoring for who's going to get to go to get her dessert. And she finally decides, hmm, I think I'm going to let Charles Helm get it. <laughs> and she's eating it up until she sees Ashley and Melanie strolling lovingly. And now she's hurt. But! Now, it's time for the ladies' afternoon nap. At these parties, the women rest for a spell while the women talk and drink and, I guess, presumably war plan at this point, I guess. So now this scene has a small detail that gave me the biggest light bulb moment. And y'all might be like, girl, yes, you stupid. But seeing it made me really realize it. Okay. So this is the South. It's hot. And there's no ceiling fans or box fans to keep these women looking their best. But the whole point of the afternoon nap is so that these women can be refreshed and beautiful for the men that enjoy looking at them, you know? Um, so there's no fan. So they wake up sweaty and gross. So in, in the film, you'll see they have little black slave girls fanning them while they sleep. And it was at that moment that I realized when I was watching it that black people really were appliances. Now I'm talking about when I saw this like the first time, not now. But I realized that black people really were like appliances. Like the way that we look at a washing machine or a ceiling fan or a dishwasher, that's how black people were viewed in these times. Like, I know we talk about how they didn't view us as people, but literally, we were machines as multi-use appliances that could be molded to whatever they needed us to do. Well, back to the film, okay. Scarlett isn't going to sleep, of course, because she's defiant to the end. So she sneaks out downstairs, hoping to catch Ashley. The men are in the parlor discussing the... Um, upcoming war or what they hope will be a war and everyone thinks that the south has it in the bag except rhett butler um he tries to be real about the situation with them and says hey um the north has like industry they have cannon factories they have all of the other factories they have a lot going for them that we just don't have down here um 
Um, but those Southern boys are not having it. They don't want to hear anything except the South is going to win. Especially Charles Hamlin. He's ready to have a literal fight. But Red just politely excuses himself to keep from causing more problems. Charles starts talking mess, but Ashley quickly lets Charles know that Rhett is a shooter. And he was doing Charles a favor by dipping, okay? He just don't want to get you into the mess. You can be used for better causes. But Ashley's going to go check up on Rhett real quick. So he heads out to find Mr. Butler. And of course, runs right into Scarlett. She says she needs to talk to him right now. So they step into the study. At first, she's acting all coy like she can't even talk. And finally, she comes out with it. Oh, I love you, Ashley. I do. Do you care about me? Ashley tells her that, yes, I do care. But they're too different. He and Melanie are like two peas in a pod. Same blood, same personalities. And Scarlett is more of like um, a spicy meatball than a bean. Well, she gets upset and tells him that he let her on, which of course we've all talked about, he did not. He has been very clear about the fact that he is totally into Melanie and has never let on that he has been into Scarlet. okay? Um, so Scarlet um, calls him horrible, calls him all sorts of names, and slaps this man across the face. Well, that is his cue to exit, which he does. Scarlet now is alone in this parlor, and she's pouting, she's huffing like a child. And then she just picks up a ceramic vase and launches it across the room, causing it to hit the wall and shatter. <sighs> Rhett Butler has been laying on a chair that was facing the wall, hiding him from view. And as soon as that vase hits the wall, he pops on up. Scarlet is, of course, pissed because Rhett should have presented himself and left. But of course he wasn't going to interrupt that whatever it was because it wasn't a lover's quarrel because they're only a child. She says he's not a gentleman and Rhett fires back right back with, and you, miss, are no lady. He also says that Ashley isn't good enough for her. But she says he's not fit to wipe Ashley's boots. Sis just slapped Ashley in the face and says she gonna hate him forever, but will defend him to the death. She leaves to gather her feelings before she sees anybody else, of course. And she hears some of the girls, including Ashley's sister, talking shit about her, saying that she made a fool of herself at the barbecue, flirting with all those boys. But who is the only one to defend her? Of course, Melanie. Melanie says Scarlett can't help it if men are attracted to her and love her. And, of course, Scarlett can't, Scarlett can't take it that Melanie is still so nice and she hates her so much. So Scarlett's heading back upstairs to bed and the men are bounding out of the heart, hooting, hollering, screaming that the President Lincoln has officially begun the war. So they're happy. They get to go and beat ass. Scarlett stares outside with tears as Ashley and Melanie kiss and embrace. Meanwhile, Melanie's brother Charles asks Scarlett to marry him when he gets back from the war. And Scarlett is so beside herself and also pissed that Ashley is not hers that she needs to take India's man, who was just talking shit about her. So she says yes, but she doesn't want to wait till after the war. She wants to wed now. And she looks sad during this whole conversation. She's not like excited to do any of this. Even at her wedding, 
The day after Ashley and Melanie got wed, she is sobbing. But now she's also Melanie's sister-in-law. Go figure. Well, Charles gets killed in battle. Hella quick. So Scarlett is a widow. Hella quick. And she is pissed that she got to walk around in all black. She's a young girl who loves bright colors, pretty dresses, you know. So this is not hitting. I know, like, I got New York sensibilities and I love an all black fit. So every time she was in black, I was like, oh, that's baller. But I get it. If you're in the South and everything is colorful and pretty and all these girls wearing these vibrant dresses. And you got to be in all black because you were more mourning about a man you ain't even really like. I get it. She cries to Mammy, but Mammy just wants Miss Scarlett to act like a proper southern white lady should, okay? And seeing how upset Scarlett is, her mom actually suggested maybe she travel. Maybe to Savannah to get some country air. Or to Atlanta, where Melanie is. Scarlett hears Atlanta and Melanie, and sis perks up, because if there's a Melanie, eventually there'll be an Ashley. Mammy does not approve of this because she knows what's up. But, of course, who cares about her opinion? Plus, they're sending Prissy with Scarlett. So, Mammy's going to still be a terror. And this other younger black slave, Prissy, is going to be accompanying Scarlett out to Atlanta. Scarlett gets to Atlanta and one of the first things that she asks to do is work a fundraiser for the war efforts at the hospital. Now, Aunt Pity Pat is always about to faint over something. And today, it's because she can't believe a widow is out here in Atlanta traveling in mourning. But Melanie says Scarlett is so kind to come out of mourning to come and help. And of course, Melanie is in mourning as well too because Charles was her brother. Well, let me tell y'all, Scarlett is not excited to be there working at all. She clearly wanted to get out among the people. She wanted to dance, do some things. But of course, they all kind of just treat her like a widow. Child, like she's supposed to be sad. Now at this point, at another fundraiser, they introduce a war hero and a blockade runner who has been instrumental in helping the war efforts. Captain Rhett Butler. Hey, He comes over to say hey to Melanie and Scarlett. Rhett tells Melanie that he met Scarlett only briefly at Twelve Oaks in the library. You know, she had just broken something. Scarlett is super short with him and is basically turning red. Now... Someone's coming around to collect jewelry as funding for the war efforts. First, Scarlett says that they don't have any because they're in mourning, you know, over Charles. Rhett donates his scar case on behalf of both of them. But then, Melanie, in a sincere act of love, gives them her wedding ring because she says it will help Ashley more off her finger than being on. Rhett recognizes how sweet that was and says as much. Well, Scarlett ain't going to be showing up, so she gives him her ring, too. And Rhett says, I know exactly how much that meant to you. <laughs> and she mentions how surprised she is. Um, Melanie's been called away, so she mentions how surprised she is that Rhett would even be out there in the war. And he says that he is doing it strictly for profit. The only cause he believes in is Rhett Butler. Now, um... The conversation with Melanie was asking permission for something that's a little bit out there for the time, but you know, it's helpful. Now, they announced that the next dance will be an auction and the men have to bid on the girls. Pity Pat has a whole conniption about it, but they tell her that the men throwing the event got Melanie's approval. 
And if Melanie says it's okay, it is. I need y'all to understand how much everybody loves Melanie and how genuinely caring and sweet she seems. She always has a kind word and kind eyes for anyone who comes to her. And so if Melanie says it's fine, everybody just decides it is fine. So guys start throwing out bids for $20, $25 for their girls. And here come Red, $150 in gold. For who? Mrs. Charles Hamilton. Well, shit, Red. You can't do that. She's in mourning. Here comes Scarlett, who supposedly hates Red, okay? Time out. Oh, yes, I can. So, among all these pretty colorful dresses, Scarlett is out here doing a jig in her black dress and hat with a veil. And she says if they do one more dance, she'll probably lose her reputation. And Rhett says, with enough courage, you could do without a reputation. That's one of my favorite lines in the movie. But he wants more than a dance. He tells her that one day he wants to hear her say the words that she said to Ashley Wilkes. I love you. But she says she'll, he'll never hear that from her to him. Now, while in Paris, he's able to retrieve both of their rings and send them back. As he knows how much Melanie's ring meant to her. Um, but when he comes back, he does bring Scarlett a green European style hat. She puts it on correctly and then quickly gets the bright idea to pretend that she doesn't know how to wear it. So that Rhett can come over and fix it. She tells him she can't keep accepting gifts from him. She'll never marry him. He tells her that he ain't a marrying man, but he still intends to get paid. She tells him she won't kiss him either. Buddy looks at her and he simply grabs her shoulders. Just grabs her and pulls her close. She tilts her head up and closes her eyes like the biggest idiot waiting on a kiss, child. And he just looks at her. He says he's not going to kiss her right now. Even though she needs to be kissed badly and often and by someone who knows how. Yes, yes. But then he tells her that the war probably won't be much longer because there's a battle happening that might end it in a little town called Gettysburg. And she asks if Ashley's there. Girl, well, you know that's Red's hot button. He gets pissed and leaves because he don't want to hear about that. Well... I don't know if y'all know history, but Gettysburg was not good for the Confederacy, and hella man died. Luckily, Ashley Wilkes is not on that list. Bless up. And even better, he gets to come home for Christmas. So, here's Scarlett out here looking like a whole idiot again. While Melanie and Ashley are super happy and embracing, obviously in love, they've been in love from the jump, she's standing over there on the side, sad. When no one asked her to be there at all. She could have been at home. You did this, sis. And even after the Christmas dinner, which is sparse because the South is losing resources, they go up to bed and Scarlett is staring longingly up the stairs as if she thought that the night was going to end. Like she thought Ashley was going to come to bed with her child. Cheese and chips. You dumb. <sighs> so the next morning, Scarlett gets up to meet Ashley before he leaves. And Melanie is so sad about it that she's staying in bed, so Scarlett wants to ride to the um, depot with him. But Ashley wants to remember her as she is now, not cold at the depot. And she ends up giving him a scarf to match the tunic that Melanie made for him for Christmas. But she has to, I guess, give it to him in secret. I don't know why. But um, 
He asked her if she can do one thing. Of course, she'll do anything. He wants Scarlet to look after Melanie for him. As he knows the end is coming and it don't look good for the South or him. Now, obviously, that's not what she wanted to hear, but she'll do anything he says. And, of course, she tries to tell Ashley that she loves him again and um, and even kisses him, bruh. And he says, she says if he tells her that he loves her, she'll live on it for the rest of her life. And Buddy just says goodbye and dips. Child, he ain't trying to have them problems. Of course, Scarlet goes, Ashley. After the war, Ashley. What a dodo. Scarlet, Scarlet is a dodo, not Ashley. He's trying his best to do what he can. Well, now that the South is like losing, losing, the hospital's getting full and Melanie brings Scarlet with her to help take care of the wounded. Scarlet wears fitted gowns while Melanie looks kind of like a nun, speaking very sweetly to every man that she helps. And when Scarlet asks her if she's tired yet, Melanie says, no. Because any of these men could be Ashley. Her love for her men is carrying her strength through this entire war. And as they leave later, a woman comes up on the steps to speak to Melanie. The other women try to shoo her away. But she says that she hears that Melanie is the kind of woman that will hear, hear her out. Because she's kind and a Christian woman. This woman, Belle Watling, is a, a courtesan. You know, a, a woman of the night. Um, but classy, you know, but she just wants to donate to the war, but they won't take her dirty money But she's a confederate just the same and she wants to help her confederate boys And of course M Melly kindly receives the money But Scarlett notices that the handkerchief that she was handed the money in has the initials RB And she's riding off in Rhett Butler's horse and buggy So of course Scarlett has to make a little comment about that as well, too so now the South is like losing, losing, like for real, for real. And Scarlett is working at a hospital without Melanie since she's home pregnant. So I guess Christmas was good to them, you know. Well, the bombs are getting closer. The, well, not bombs, the cannons. The men in the hospital are suffering big time. And Scarlett's last straw is when she's asked to assist with a leg amputation with no meds. Because they've run out. And I did mention earlier up top. But the dude that's having his leg cut off sounds just like Gene Wilder. Like, I can't impersonate it. But he's like, no, please, please. Like, it's real hard. But if you think of Gene Wilder's voice in, like, Young Frankenstein. Um, when he's having the dream. And, like, or whenever, like, in any movie. Even the the yelling scene in uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Or... Is it Charlie? Willy Wonka. Um, and it, it, he sounds like Gene Wilder. It's crazy. Um, anyway, she's done. Scarlet's done. She's like, I'm leaving. I can't do this anymore. She dips. But she's quickly swept up into the mess of people running for the hills. It's chaos in the streets. Out of a group of slaves bopping along, singing, of all songs, let my people go. She spots Big Sam and a few of the slaves from Terror. These men singing let my people go are on their way to dig ditches for the confederacy to keep slaves like not letting their people go how ironic is that like that's crazy what a song choice well big sam ends up telling scarlet that her mom is sick but ain't nothing to worry about just a little bit but they gotta go so um off she goes back into the mess 
But you know who magically shows up, right? Red. He rides by in his carriage and picks her up to take her to Pretty Pat's house. And Red recommends that they leave. Like, leave, leave the country. Then leave and go somewhere else. But of course, Scarlet's still bitter and says she'll never go anywhere with him. So he drops her off and goes on his way. Pity Pat is leaving. She cannot stand all the, the noises, the explosions, the chaos. She is literally about to pass out every three seconds. So she's going to make it. And Scarlet wants to go too and even sells Prissy to pack her things. But she promised Ashley she would take care of Melanie. And Melanie is sick and pregnant. Though in two separate things. Like she not she is sick because she's pregnant, but also sick because she's sick and in a bad way. She even tries to tell Dr. Mead that she don't know nothing about babies, but Prissy swears she knows how to do it because her mom used to let her help all the time. So she decides to stay, but then says to herself, I hate you, Melanie, and I hate your baby. If only I hadn't promised Ashley. <sighs> well, Unfortunately, the South loses. Spoiler alert. So, sorry if you were into slavery, but yeah, sorry. So, some dude comes riding through the streets on his horse saying that the Yankees is heading to Atlanta and the South is retreating, so she might want to dip too. So, she goes in to get Melanie packed up so they can leave. Sis has gone into labor, and she is apologizing. Y'all, listen, Melanie is like the sweetest... But sometimes she get on my nerves. Okay. Okay, I don't know if y'all can relate to this. But I hate when I'm when I'm irritated at someone about something that they can't really help. And I'm trying to hold in my irritation. And I feel good about myself for holding in my irritation. But then they apologize for the thing that they can't control either. So now I feel worse for being mad. Because they've acknowledged that they put me in a bad situation. And we both know that they can't help it. But... Can you just be a little bit of a jerk? Can you be an asshole for just a second so I can be justified in my irritation? Just for a second? But no. Melly is even gentle and sweet during labor. And she thinks she's about to die. And asks if Scarlet will take care of her baby. And Scarlet just tells her not to talk like that. She don't say either way, but child. So she tells Prissy, run and get the doctor. Prissy comes strolling back, singing, walking slow, with no doctor. She says she went to the hospital, and they said he wasn't there. He's at the car shed. Prissy, why you ain't go to the car shed? Well, Prissy's scared. She can't go to the car shed. It's too many dead bodies. Okay, we gonna talk about Prissy later. I got so many words about Prissy, and I know it's not Butterfly McQueen's fault, but... We're going to talk about all that later on. So anyway, Scarlet tells Prissy to stay there. She'll go get Dr. Me. She gets down to the carport, and it's, whew, like, I know Prissy said she ain't want to go because it was bodies, but it's bodies just laid out everywhere, dead and dying. She's stepping over bodies to find a doctor, and obviously when she finds him, he's like, girl, I cannot leave all these people out here to help you for, deliver a baby for one woman. Find another woman to help you do that, child. So, okay. Okay, I saw this movie for the first time when I was maybe like eight, nine years old or something, and this was the scene that stuck with me for the longest time. Scarlett comes back absolutely exhausted um, and tells Prissy, that Melanie's in labor and she's going to have to go ahead and deliver the baby and Scarlett will help her. 
And Prissy says, oh, I don't know nothing about birthing babies. Y'all. Okay, so Scarlett's like, um, excuse me, you literally just told the doctor that you birth babies all the time. You told him you knew all about it. And Prissy goes, I don't know why I lied to the doctor. Scarlett cocked back and slapped her so hard in the face. Child. And the sad thing about this scene is, obviously, we do not like to see slavery. We do not like to see um, uh, abuse of anybody on screen, especially black people in slave times. That's, that's traumatizing. And you really don't see any other slave abuse on screen except for this one specific scene. And it is a scene where Prissy has done something that we probably all would slap her in the face for. She said she could help birth this child for this sick woman and she knows nothing about it. But it's unfortunate that they give a reason for the abuse and it seems almost valid, like they're validating the right to hit this woman um, because she made a poor decision, which was a very poor decision, and we probably all would relate to Scarlett's feelings of wanting to hit this woman, but it's the only time that they, we see uh, the abuse of a slave on screen, which is, I think, very interesting. But anyway, they still have to deliver this baby, so she tells Prissy to go find some stuff and meet her in Melly's room, and they actually bring a fine baby boy into the world. So after this, Prissy goes to the saloon to find Rhett, and he's upstairs at a party with Belle Watlin and some other women. Well, Prissy will not be going in there, even though they tease her a little bit because her mama would tan her hide if she found out she was in this kind of establishment. But Scarlett needs Rhett's carriage to get out of town. Even though Melly had the baby, she's still not well, and the peoples is still coming. So Scarlett is ready to get up on out of there. Well. The Northman took Rhett's carriage, but he's able to get one from one of the girls and go on and bring it to her. So Rhett gets over to the house and tells him that she has to go. And she says, she got to go. They got to get back to Tara. She got to get back to her mama. And Rhett tells her that they've been fighting around Tara this whole time. It's not safe for her to go over there. Like, she needs to just chill. She basically throws a temper tantrum, like, it looks like a five-year-old throwing a temper, temper tantrum. She starts crying, saying she wants her mother. She even he starts hitting Rhett in the chest the way like a child does. And he hugs her and shushes her like, shh, it's okay, it's okay, okay, we'll go, we'll go. And he even takes the handkerchief out of his pocket and puts it up to her nose so she can like blow it the way a child does. It's their relationship, we'll talk about their relationship after the second half because there's a, a grander conversation to be had. But she almost has a bratty child relationship with him. And if you are familiar at all with like the kink scene, she kind of just has a general brat relationship with him. But we will talk about that later. So after all of this, adventure starts after all of this. They go in the house, they get Melly and the baby into the carriage. Melly is so weak, she can't even put her arms around Rhett, but she manages to call out, Ashley, Charles, so that they can remember to bring Ashley's photo and Charles's sword from the home. Um, they First, they run into scavengers that want to steal the horse, so they've got to fight off the scavengers. 
Then, after traveling for a little while, they go by the burning ammunition factory that's about to explode, and the horse gets spooked. So they have to put something over the horse's eyes to get it going, barely making it out of the area before it explodes. Then, they end up in a line of Confederate soldiers that are tired, walking to wherever they're headed for safety. Some of them are literally passing out and dying right there on the road. And Scarlett says she hates that the South was so proud that they basically ruined the Old South. And she tells Rhett that he should be proud he's not a soldier, that he stayed away from battle once it got bad. And Rhett says he's not so proud. Now, after a bit more traveling, they get to the turn that leads to Tara. And Rhett tells Scarlett that if she really wants to go home, she's going to have to do it alone. He knows that the South will make a last stand somewhere, and he wants to be there. Now, of course, Scarlett is pissed. This man has, like, brought her this far just to leave in the middle of somewhere. But Rhett has somehow found some level of patriotism, some level of nobility or something somewhere. So here he goes. But he wants a kiss from Scarlet before he heads off into battle. Now, she's begging him to stay, telling him she can't do it by herself. And this man tells her that he loves her because they're both basically pieces of shit and selfish. But they see things for how they really are and they tell it like it is. He grabs her and asks her to kiss him just one time. And he kisses her. And she lets him for like just a second before she hits him and pushes him off and calls him a lot of names. She even slaps him in the face. She loves a little slap in the face. Um, but there he goes. Off he goes. She cries for like just a moment, like maybe 10 seconds before she ceremoniously wipes her tears, does a couple little sniffles, and she gets back on the road to Tara. They don't have food. The horse is exhausted and foaming at the mouth, and they even get stuck in a rainstorm underneath some um, northern soldiers, all trying to get to Tara. They finally get over by 12 Oaks, looking for some food. It's burned to the ground, destroyed. The foundation and a couple of walls are still there, and the staircase, the grand staircase, still winds around, but that bit is gone. Melly even, like, Weakly lifts her head up, hoping to see Twelve Oaks, but she sees John Wilkes's grave and solemnly lays back down. Well, finally, they get to Tara, right as their horse conks down and dies. In the shadows, of course, you can't really show, like, animal death, like, you know, because of the motion picture. You know, we've talked about this a million times, but to the shadows. But the moon comes out. And in the moonlight, Scarlet can see that Tara is, in fact, still standing, beautiful as ever. Well, a little worse for wear, but still standing. So she goes in, calling for her mama. Daddy opens the door. At first, he's stunned, but then he hugs Katie Scarlet so hard, so happy to see her. She's still asking for her mama, though. She sees Mammy, calls to her warmly, and Mammy's so happy to see her, has a warm smile. Still asking for her mama, though. Well, mama got typhoid, and uh, last night, can't even finish the sentence. Scarlett goes into the room to find her mama gone. Just one night earlier, and she could have seen her.
Now, of course, Scarlet breaks down crying, and after a time, she comes back out. Tears are wiped away. She's hungry. She's tired. She tells them to make her something to eat. There ain't no food. The Confederate soldiers done holed up at the house and made it their headquarters. Took everything when they left. Okay, well, tie up the cow that we found at Terra to the barn. We can't tie up no cow to the barn. Ain't no, cow, ain't no barn no more. The barn done got burned down. And we's houseworkers. We don't know how to milk no cow, Miss Scarlet. Child. Scarlet goes in and talk to her dad, try to figure out something. And he says that Scarlet's mother will know what to do. So he has lost his mind. He's sitting there playing with... Uh, Mrs. O'Hara's earrings. He's lost it. Scarlet is exhausted, doesn't know what to do. She's heartbroken. She goes out into the burned and tattered field in the back. She finds a random carrot growing out of the ground and tries to eat it raw and immediately makes herself gag. Then she says one of the most famous lines from the film with the light of the sun rising behind her, her fist clenched in defiance. As God is my witness, I won't let him lick me. I'm going to live through this and I'll never be hungry again. Me nor none of my folk. If I have to, I'll lie, cheat, and steal or kill. As God is my witness, I'll never be hungry again. And the music swells and her little fist drops down. And uh, our first act draws to a close. Now... If you were watching this back at the premiere, you would have been presented with a 20-minute intermission with a timer on screen. So considering the film's three-hour and 58-minute one time, like we talked about before, people would have probably needed it to go get snacks, go to the restroom, check on their kids at home. This is 1939. There were not Marvel films. People were not used to four-hour films. The Batman was not a thing. Now we just go and see the Batman, and it's normal because we have cell phones. We have everything at our disposal that we need to do what we need to do there and when we need um, to get home. Back then, like, lights wasn't even the same as it was now. So, um, so since we did a lot of setup up top about this film and um, talked a lot of a little bit sparsely throughout, um, we're going to, and I don't want to give anything away quite yet about the second half. I won't do full film commentary at the end of this one. So next week, we'll jump right back into the second part, and then we'll talk about the whole film afterwards. So it might be a little bit of a longer episode. So the war is over after this, and now we get into the nitty-gritty at Tara. So our next episode will actually be coming out this Wednesday, May the 4th. So some of you may know what that is. Then next Wednesday after that, we'll jump right back into part two of Gone with the Wind. Please follow the podcast on whatever platform you use and rate wherever available. Check out the Halef Pod Instagram. Follow me at Twitter at film underscore Nikki. And I told y'all last time, I'm good for a post and delete. And y'all done missed some juicy posts this week. So y'all better get over there and see what I'm doing. Send any collab requests, advice, movie recommendations, or general greetings to Here's Looking Podcast at gmail.com. And always feel free to look in the link tree in my bio at what stuff I have going on. Or you can buy me a coffee. Thanks for tuning in, and if I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. And here's to another 25. Cheers!